Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts, practitioners and commentators to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to mention that Tax Banter will be an exhibitor at the Accounting Business Expo on 20 to 21 March at the International Convention Centre in Sydney at Darling Harbour. I'll be there on the Wednesday along with our marketing specialist and training manager and my Tax Banter colleagues will also be there on the Thursday. So we'd love to see if you'd like to drop in and say hi. Today, I am joined by one of my training colleagues here at Tax Banter, Nicole Rowan, who is a senior tax trainer. Nicole has a Bachelor of Laws with Honours, is a solicitor of the Supreme Court of Victoria and holds a grad dip in education and a diploma of management. She is a lawyer who has previously worked at Morris Blackburn and the ATO, where she worked in litigation and dispute resolution and the aggressive tax planning area of the private groups and high wealth individuals program, including self-managed funds. Nicole has held various senior positions both in commerce and accounting practices and in the community, not-for-profit and charity sector. And she's worked on charity regulation reform at the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission. Nicole, great to have you with me today. Oh, it's great to be here. I really love listening to Tax Yak, so it's really nice to be part of it today. Absolutely. We'll get you out on the other side of the microphone for a change. Yep. All right. So today we're going to have a chat about where Parliament's basically sitting. We have an election on its way. Mm. We have an early budget. We've got limited sitting days. Very limited. And a whole swag of bills. Yes, a lot of things that are sitting there and we don't know what's happening with them. There's a, there's a level of uncertainty that is not going to be resolved in the next sitting periods of Parliament because there's just not enough days to resolve it. So we are going to go to the election with a lot of bills that will end up lapsing because that's what happens to bills when um, an election is called. So look, why don't we just set the scene for everybody? I'm not sure that too many follow the Constitution too closely and, <laughs> and the way that this all works before Parliament. So basically, we're coming to the end of the 45th Parliament. Yes. And everybody remembers the double dissolution election that was held uh, by the, uh, the the government when it was under, of course, Malcolm Turnbull. So what's got to happen in terms of dates? A lot of Australians don't actually realise that there are extended dates in play which um, could actually delay the election for the lower house. So what I mean by that is, in terms of the 72 state senators, when they are elected three years ago under the double dissolution, they have a, a formula for working out when everybody starts off on a, a clean slate again, which ones are on three-year terms and which ones are on six-year terms. And that's right, because that's the nature of the Senate, that they um, they sit for six years, but in the case of a double dissolution where all the senators had to be re-elected, then that's certainly mucked up that, the you know, the crossover of half of them serving six or half of them being elected each election. So yeah, yeah. so what we'll have is um, yeah, there's a kind of a group A and a group B, mm. and those that are the group B are serving a full six-year term. Yes. Um, the other half, uh, three years on, are up for re-election again. So that must happen no later than the 18th of May. But the four senators representing the ACT and the Northern Territory and all of the lower house members don't actually have to go to the polls until the 2nd of November. That's right. But I think it's highly unlikely that Australia could stomach two federal elections, the cost, the advertising campaigns and, of course, the inefficiencies. 
Yes, I think so. I, I don't think it would engender very much political goodwill if the current government was to announce only an election of senators in May and to delay the election of the House of Reps uh, and, and those four senators until November. So more than likely we are just going to see a regular general election, 11 or 18 May. The budget has been handed down the second Tuesday in May since 1994, but we're breaking tradition this year because with the election being held in May, that's pushed the budget back to Tuesday the 2nd of April. That's right. Yep. That's now interfering with our sitting days. Yes. So if, uh, I've got the parliamentary calendar in front of me and if we take a look at it, Parliament wrapped up last Thursday, but that was House of Reps only. The Senate didn't sit last week. No, they were in Senate estimates, which was a very interesting week of estimates. It was. For those political nerds that were following. (laughs) Those that like watching that. So they don't sit in March. And the next sitting day is just two days with the full parliament, the 2nd and the 3rd of April, the Tuesday and the Wednesday, of course, one being the budget handed down on the Tuesday evening. And that's basically it for the Senate until the election. That's two days for the Senate to consider. I think it's probably well over 50 tax bills alone, let alone all the other bills um, in relation to other matters. So they're not going to get through much of that. It's an impossible task. Mm, yep. And I'm going to extrapolate this further. It's not just two sitting days in the Senate until the election. On my forecast, it's two sitting days until the 12th of August, which yes. sounds extraordinary that the Senate's only got two more days official work in the next six months. It is extraordinary and it's problematic when you look at a num- the number of proposed changes that will commence on 1 July 2019 and we need to know ahead of time that those changes are certain and exactly the the technical aspects of those so that people can actually be prepared for them. There might be situations where contracts actually have to be reviewed in relation to some of the announcements they've made. So if we're talking about the um, proposal to uh, deny deductions on the holding of vacant land and also in relation to a person's fame or image, the, the um, uh, change to treatment of the income received under those circumstances, they might actually require contract changes. So there are commercial implications here. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. So just to explain to everyone why I say two sitting days between now and August, because you might go and look at the calendar and say, well, hold on, there's a whole bunch of days scheduled in May and June. Yep. May days are obviously going to get cancelled because of the election. And whilst there are three sitting weeks in June... I'm just wondering, by the time they count all the absentee votes and postal votes and they have all the stationery printed up and they put all the ministers' names on the doors and they pick their cabinet, etc., whichever party forms government, I can't see them forming any or having any parliamentary sittings in June. July they don't sit and the schedule next shows the 12th of August. So we've got virtually no time to get a whole bunch of measures through. Uh, The important thing to note too is that the senators that are elected don't actually commence until 1 July. So there are a number of um, practical um, issues that would likely prevent the sitting of the parliament in June. So I think um, your perspective that they will not sit again until August is going to be quite accurate. Mm. Now, I'm just wondering if this is an exercise that everybody might like to try with their employers. Just try (laughs) running past them. Look, I'm only going to work two days in the next six months, but I'd like full pay. I'm just wondering how you're going to go with that. We'll speak to Neil afterwards. All right. Hopefully he's been listening. So let's kick off. Um, I just wanted to give some preliminary figures on how the budget's setting, because, of course, that's the big focus for the government leading up to the 2nd of April. And then we can start talking about the outstanding measures. So the deficit for the 18-19 financial year in May of last year was forecast to be $14.5 billion. 
But six months on in the mid-year economic and fiscal outlook, which was released last December, they have revised that uh, over $14 billion deficit down to just a $5 billion deficit. Now, we will get that final outcome around September of this year. Then looking at the forward estimates period, um, basically the government is predicting we're going to be back in the black. So they're predicting surpluses of $4 billion for 1920, $12 billion for 2021 and $19 billion for 21-22. So, Nicole, just your quick observation. If indeed we do get back into the black, and gee, that's a big if, and there's a lot of scepticism out there that we may not get yeah. it back in the black. Yeah. Is that necessarily a healthy thing? Well, I think this is a very contested idea, although I'm, I'm not sure that there's a lot of debate in the media. It de- the media tends to present the idea of getting into a surplus as a positive, um, but I think there are some economists out there that would um, would challenge that on the basis that if a government is in surplus, they there has to be debt sitting somewhere in the community, so it tends to be pushed um, into the private sector, which consists of, our, of course, our large organizations and entities but also um, mums and dads you know who are um, household debt yeah that's right household debt mortgages etc and so it does there is some indication on past circumstances where the government has been in surplus that it creates more mortgage stress or or debt stress um, in families and communities so so that's why I think it is contested these these figures are mm, really flexible, aren't they? Rubbery or something like that. I mean, um, who knows? I, I, there has been some talk that there were some unfunded superannuation liabilities that were not included in that calculation that at some point will have to be. So whether that's uh, information that we see when the budget is released. But, yeah, there's... Um, I don't know that it should be a goal. I think a goal should be that government continues to find the best policy and good infrastructure investment for the well-being of the community. That's that's what I'd like to see them focus on. And I think it's worth noting the debt we've got. So some of you may recall that in 2006, Costello walked into his office and announced to the country that day that we've just paid off our last dollar of debt. We are now interest-free. Uh, the figures released in MIFO is that the current level of gross debt owed by the government is running at $542 billion. Mm. These are staggering figures and it's causing an interest bill of more than $1 billion a month. They're exceptionally high and if we were seeing a good long-term infrastructure development for that money, I think that would be a good thing, but whether we're seeing that, I'm not sure. Mm. All right, so having set the scene, that's what we're confronting Uh, Let's just have a a check-in with all the measures that have in fact either been enacted, they've passed the Parliament and received royal assent, or just in the last couple of weeks a handful of bills have actually cleared the Parliament, but we're still waiting for royal assent to be formally given, which um, uh, won't uh, cause any delays of course in terms of the measures proceeding. Mm. So let's kick off with corporate tax cuts, uh, one that we have certainly discussed many times in this forum, um, but your observations on the corporate tax cuts. Well, we've got there and we've got some certainty now, I think. Perhaps it was a little messier than needed. It took, you know, perhaps about, you know, two years too long. You're to very kind. Get, well, two years too long to, to get clarity and certainty. And having said that, do we have clarity? I think whilst we know now what the new test and the rules are regarding passive income, which is a, a passive income is part of the test to determine if a company is a base rate entity and therefore if that company is able to access the reduced corporate tax rate, 
Um, I think applying those rules about what is passive income is creating some confusion. So I think we're we're going to see um, over the next year or two, perhaps some company tax returns lodged with, you know, a box ticked that shouldn't be or a box that should have been ticked is not. And that box is just whether it's a base rate entity. So it's essential that tax practitioners really understand what is the definition of a base rate entity. It's not the same as a small business entity. And I think that's where some of the confusion lies. It's a good point to make. And, and the box that Nicole's talking about, of course, is F2 on the company tax return. So um, notably, there is no validation error on that. No, there's not. And I did ask the ATO, (laughs) there isn't a validation error. And the ATO said, no, we didn't put a validation error on it. And that's because under self-assessment, you go through the test to work out whether in fact you're a base rate entity or not. Um, I think also it's not just about whether the rate is correct and do you pass the passive income test, but the franking implications, getting that right. And understanding that the franking rate is not necessarily the same as your current year tax rate. Mm, that's right. And and for those, for example, dormant companies with retained earnings, you're potentially going to be paying out dividends at a lower and, and franking at a lower rate than what those are, those profits were actually taxed at. So that has particular implications because now we know that the rate of tax is going to go down to 25% a lot earlier than first planned. So we will have 25% by the year 2021-22 which has implications for the loss of franking credits. And um, that needs to be considered in terms of, you know, forward planning. I would add to that, Nicole, that we're sitting here in February of 2019. There are now two June 30s left if someone's going to pay a dividend at the 27.5% rate. So in other words, from 1 July Mm. 2020, it drops to 26 the year after down to 25. And... I've been saying in sessions that really it's a trade-off. Talk to clients mm. and some of them may wish to bring the tax forward knowing that they can maximise their franking credits at the slightly higher rate, i.e. 27.5, but top-up tax could be payable, of course, earlier than would otherwise be the case. Yes. Or they delay the payment of the dividend, which means they delay the top-up tax, but then they're only able to frank at 26 and possibly even 25% depending on the timing. And there's no easy answer to that question. Mm, which is why planning is important, but it's actually quite difficult to plan in this environment that we're in. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, we don't know what changes are around the corner. And also it it is tricky to plan ahead in terms of what's your tax rate this rate versus what's your franking rate going to be, etc. Particularly when it's based on, well, franking's based on your prior year, but your tax rate is, of course, current year earnings, Mm. which haven't ended until the year is over. So it is hard to do planning. Yep. Perhaps also worth mentioning that, of course, the government isn't proceeding with the big end of town tax cuts, so the $50 million and over. That's right. Um, I wonder if any government has an appetite to touch that again in a future parliament. Well, perhaps not. No, I mean, unless we, we see a different attitude perhaps from the Senate, but I don't see that in probably the next three or four years. Mm. All right, let's move on to taxable payments reporting. So where are we at with this? Well, our couriers and cleaners needed to start reporting from 1 July 2018, noting, of course, that the reporting date is the 28th of August after the end of the financial year. But hopefully what our advisors have done is identified who are courier and cleaning clients that need to report because it's not just your obvious couriers and your obvious cleaners because the threshold at which you need to start reporting is when your income consists of or your overall annual GST turnover when 10% of that or more is income from providing cleaning or couriering services. So it's quite a low threshold. It's a very low threshold. And I think it's actually caught some people by surprise because there's there's perhaps more of their clients that have been brought into that than they originally first thought. 
So with the building construction industry, which has been in these rules since 2012, they have a 50% threshold. They do. And so that's why this is something that really needs to be noted by um, practitioners out there. Absolutely. Mm. And that 10% is also going to apply, or the 10% threshold, is also going to apply to the new industries that will come under the taxable payments reporting system from 1 July 2019. So that's road freight, security investigation and surveillance services and IT services. And IT is going to be a pretty broad one. IT is very broad. There's one thing I noticed with IT is that it includes website design consultancy. And again, that's going to start to bring in some of our design, graphic designers, etc. that perhaps knew that they were in, in an industry where they used a computer, but didn't perhaps realise that they were in IT services for the purpose of reporting. And when you apply that 10% threshold, those designers might actually, their income may be over 10% in relation to their specific website design work. So suddenly they've been brought in. in. I know that agents are having issues with these reports in that they don't appear on the portal. So there isn't currently a an ability to look at a list and say which of my clients need to lodge or which That's ones right. have outstanding reports. And I hope that mm. changes in the future with ATL Online. There's, there's ongoing issues with the portal and the, the lack of information that I would have thought perhaps would be easy to fix. But you know, I think we need to work on that with a bit more advocacy there. All right, moving on to small business CGT concessions. Now, we could do an entire podcast on this alone, but just quickly, what's happened with this one? Well, I think what's important is the the date, the 8th of February 2018 date, because from that date onwards, or that date and onwards, where there has been a CGT event involving a disposal of a share in a company and an interest in a trust, then there are some new additional conditions that apply that may... Um, mean that the taxpayer is actually not eligible to claim the small business CGT concessions. So it's really important that practitioners look at um, any such events and then look at the date to determine what rules they need to apply. So either the the old existing rules, which um, include, you know, can get quite complex when you're looking at CGT concession stakeholder rules, but from the 8th of February, you apply all those old rules plus the three new additional conditions. It's also important not just to look at CGT events that have happened during the year end of 30th of June 2018, but also look forward. What does that mean for existing and proposed structures? Because they might have, um, you know, be put in place to actually ensure that there's access to CGT small business concessions, but in applying the new rules, they're, they're not effective anymore. And look, it's beyond the scope of today's discussion to go into the conditions that are necessary, but mm. it is used to be. It certainly is. And the rules were difficult to begin with, so. They were, yep. yes. All yeah. right, we'll leave that for now. We can always yep. come back to that in a future episode. Uh, personal tax cuts. Uh, look, I, I think very briefly on that, at the moment, in the first few years, they're really just uh, an offset and you don't really see the, the impact of that offset until you do your tax return. You might get a little bit more of a refund, probably only worth about a coffee a week. Um, but the... When we actually see the, I guess, the tax cuts themselves, so what we're looking at there is um, increases to the income tax rate thresholds, that, that's probably, we're still probably four or five years away from the impact of those. And, you know, we're going to have a couple of federal elections and a lot more budgets between now and then. Well, that's so, the point. It's so. not just one, it's at least two elections between yeah. now and then. Yep. So anything can change. Anything can change, yeah. That's but right. noting it is all legislated, so to change in the future, they would have to amend the law again. That's right. All right, significant changes which have gone through and received royal assent. It's described as non-compliant payments. So these measures are going to remove tax deductions paid to workers where the employer does not withhold PAYG withholding from an employee 
or no ABN withholding respect of a contractor who either doesn't provide their ABN or quotes the wrong ABN. That's right. Yep. Or fails to report those payments through activity statements or through single touch payroll. This is huge. It is actually a significant change. And if you think about the level of information that's provided to the ATO in respect of payment summaries, so wage payments and withholding, the ATO is going to have all the information they need to determine when there has been a non-compliant payment, but significantly, when it is non-compliant, it becomes non-deductible. And if you lose the deduction of your wages, think about the impact of this, for example, for companies, small companies who are paying wages to their directors, that's going to be significant impact to their uh, profit really so you, or their, their taxable income you're basically alluding mm. to post year indirectors fees which are often determined after the end of the income yes. year yep and outside of PAYG outside of PAYG <laughs> although in some cases what happens is they will actually go back and amend the activity statement they do. but mm. in many cases they're just amending W1 not W2 mm. so they report yes. the extra income but they don't actually go back and pay tax on it that's right and this is really quite significant and, and overlaid with single touch payroll which we'll get to as well I think this has to actually be looked at in relation to single touch payrolls I mean none, no law change happens in a vacuum it's all in context of the other law changes and putting the these two together is actually creates a significant risk to clients. There are certain uh, rules that apply. So without going into any detail, if you happen to withhold the wrong amount, you're not affected by these rules. Or if withholding does not apply, you're not subject to these rules. But certainly significant implications for those who are not complying correctly. So we've got a new work test exemption, which starts on 1 July this year. So this is about somebody who's aged 65 to 74 who ordinarily would not be able to contribute to superannuation unless they passed the work test. And the government found that there were a number of people who were in their first year of retirement wanted to contribute to super, but because they had stopped working and they might have come into a sum of money or they might have crystallised an asset or something, they weren't able to. Mm -hmm. So a new regulation has been registered last December. It takes effect 1 July 19 and it will provide for a one-off work test exemption. So the key criteria is that you're aged 65 to 74, you've got a total super balance at the end of the previous financial year of less than $300,000, so it's only for those who have smaller amounts in super, and it's your first year of retirement. And that will enable you to make a contribution into super without having to pass the work test. Now it's worth noting in the mid-year economic and fiscal outlook, there was a further announcement to say that these people would also be able to tap into the bring forward rule. So that means instead of being limited to $100,000, which is typical for your 65 to 74 year olds, yes. they'd be able to access a $300,000 limit, but again, as a once off. But we're still waiting for that to be put through more formally. That's right. So far, that second part is actually just an announcement, whereas the, the former is now registered and law. So, yeah. All right. Another measure that has now passed the parliament but is awaiting royal assent, a company makes a loss, fails a quantity of ownership test, and in the past has had to satisfy the same business test in order to use the loss. It's always been a very strict test, and it doesn't work terribly well with innovation and startup companies mm. who mm. are prone to changes in ownership and prone to changing what they do, which causes them to fail the same business test. So we've got a new similar business test, which provides a little bit more flexibility and it's an alternative to the same business test. Uh, interestingly, this start date goes back to 1 July 2015. That's right. Applies to losses made in income years commencing from 1 July 15. So yeah, surprising, but um, there you go. <laughs> 
Uh, and I think it's important to note that it's um, it's supplementing the same business test. I've seen some commentary where it says it's replacing, but it's not. And that would be incorrect. It's yeah, not replacing. Yeah, it's an alternative. So why and would you use one over the other? I think the innovation point that you made is really all about those that are that are innovative and entrepreneurial and so forth. They're trying to support them to you know, continue to do that level of investment and, and recreation, renewing ideas. Yeah. And just for those who want to look at this in more detail, the ATO has released a draft law companion ruling. It's LCR 2017 D6. That's 2017 D6. All right, on to single touch payroll. And just before we go any further, it is worth noting this is a topic in its own right. Yes. In fact, so much so that Taxband is going to be running a webinar, a joint webinar with the tax office on Wednesday the 27th of March. So more details are going to be available shortly on that. But um, Nicole, I might discuss this one because mm, I've been on the consultation sure. with STP yep. um, pretty much since it began. It's been about three no years now. No one knows more about it than you, Robin. Oh, I'm sure there are people <laughs> in the ATO who do, but yes, it's a topic I've been uh, spending a lot of time on. So finally, after a long period before Parliament, the relevant amending legislation has now cleared the Parliament. That occurred a couple of weeks ago. Thank goodness, we've got certainty on that. We do. So we are still waiting for royal assent, but that is just a mere formality. So what it means is we've got over 700,000 employers, the small employers who employ 19 or fewer employees, will be subject to single-touch payroll reporting from the 1st of July this year. I think the change is enormous and, and our tax advisors must be ready for that. We're going from 60,000 employers using single-touch payroll to over 700,000 come 1 July 19. That's going to be a, a have a significant impact on their workload. This is, without doubt, the biggest rollout of a system implementation since GST was introduced mm, 18, yep. 19 years ago. Yep. So it's beyond the scope of today to go into, of course, any technical detail. What I will say is, firstly, there is an ATO webcast. So they are rolling this out nationally on Tuesday, the 5th of March. And in our blog article, which is going to accompany this podcast, uh, there is certainly a hyperlink which you can give, um, which you can go into to access details of that webcast. So again, that's being held on the 5th of March. That is next Tuesday. Uh, secondly, I encourage everyone who's affected by STP, that's employers and employees alike, to access the ATO information on their website at ato.gov.au forward slash STP. There will be a three-month reprieve, if you like, so small employers will not have to start complying with STP until after the 30th of September, and that's just in recognition of the very late timing of this legislation getting through Parliament, and there will be some special rules for closely held employers, Uh, but more information is going to be released on that by the ATO next week. So moving on to protecting your super. Well, this was an interesting one. The um, the proposed bill that was put up by the government ended up being passed, but with a number of amendments that were moved by the Greens and agreed to by the government, but not by Labor. That was actually 22 amendments. I'll go into the detail on, the, on them soon. Uh, so the government agreed to those amendments, but then as soon as the bill passed, they prompt, promptly introduced another bill 
that actually contains all the original policy proposals that they had just agreed to changing. So, so they're basically saying, okay, we'll agree to what the Greens wanted, but we're going to have another go anyway. That's right, yes. Yeah. So really interesting. I mean, the amendments removed the proposed opt-in rule for insurance within super for people aged under 25 and for people with account balances of less than 6,000. Now, there will still be some um, opt-out rules and opt-in rules applied, but when you take those away, there's actually not much left in the bill. So all I can see that was really actually left in the bill is the um, some limits on costs that the um, the trustee the fund trustees can actually apply when it's a low value fund. So so yeah, I mean there's not much left. There was also a change to the period of inactivity. It went from 13 months to 16 months, which um, is was proposed to deal with those parents that might be on parental leave. Look, one more measure that is also worth noting is that embedded in the single-touch payroll legislation is another measure that seems to have gone under the radar. Currently, for PAYG withholding and SGC purposes, there is a three-month rule, and this relates to the issue of director penalty notices. So the DPN can be issued once the amount has gone been unreported for at least three months. They have just removed this three-month rule for the SGC. For the SGC, not for PAYG withholding liability. So it remains mm. in place for PAYG. Mm. But my understanding of this is that once you fail to pay the SGC, this is the 28th day of the second month following the end of the quarter in which the um, the SG relates, then the ATO is free to issue a director penalty notice. And that's pretty significant. It is significant. And I think... One of the things that you said is it's gone under the radar. When I mention it in our tax banter training uh, sessions, there's a lot of people that just were not aware and are concerned about this change. Yep. Mm. Okay, so that basically gives us a summary of all the bills that have got through. So we have certainty on those and what we've been discussing with you for the last half hour or so, um, you can rely on. Now, let's go into the measures that are still pending. So we'll now move on to the measures that are still before Parliament or still exposure draft legislation or even still just an announcement. So the problem with this next bundle of measures is that you can't rely on anything we're about to tell you because it may not get through the Senate. Well, going back to our discussion at the start of the podcast today, there's just so limited, such a limited opportunity for the Senate to consider these bills that we can only accept that perhaps one or two of them will get through. I can't imagine any more than that. We, of course, we, and we don't know which ones that it will be. We don't. So, and we also mm. don't know if government retaining would uh, resurrect these policies or if Labor forming government would adopt these policies. So a lot of uncertainty. Yes. All right, let's go through this list and it's uh, not insignificant. Starting with illegal phoenix activity. So just to set the scene on this one, we've had existing estimates rules. So it's called the estimates regime in Division 268 and the director penalty regime in Division 269, both in Schedule 1 and the Tax Admin Act, where the ATO can pursue outstanding amounts of PAYG withholding or SGC. Including out, including based on the estimates that the ATO makes. Correct. So mm. not just actual amounts due, but estimates of amounts That's due. That's right. Yep. And this is significant because as a result of this bill being introduced, and we of course don't know if it will proceed through Parliament, is that they are proposing to extend it to three additional taxes. What are they, Nicole? Well, importantly, it was it's going to include liabilities for unpaid GST, but as well as the luxury car tax and the wine equalisation tax. So the impact on unpaid GST, I think, is going to have significant ramifications in the community. Of course, this is a bill that has been 
that has come about because of recommendations in relation to illegal phoenixing activity. But it's not just going to hurt those or impact on those who have been considering or undertaken phoenix activity. It's going to hurt all of our companies. But all companies who don't pay GST, they can pursue. Yes. Pursue the directors, that is. They can pursue the directors, that's right. It's huge. Mm, It is. And so those directors that have just got behind or, you know, had, you know, one you know, something go wrong, it's it's going to hurt them. Although you'd like to think the ATO, if they looked at a situation where there was one best payment falling behind, they wouldn't pursue the director and take the house off them. I, I do think that the ATO does provide uh, a measured response in most cases. Okay, mm. so very significant. Now, next one is the 29th of January, the Prime Minister announced an increase in the threshold for the instant asset write-off. This is depreciable assets acquired and installed for use by small business entities, those under 10 million turnover. Uh, Nicole, can you just run us through what the two changes are here? Yeah, so as you said, there's two parts to this. So the first one is that the the threshold will increase from 20,000 to 25,000 from the date of the 29th, but it's it requires those assets to be first used or installed ready for use on or after the 29th of January 2019. So we're going to have two different thresholds for the 1819 income That's year. That's right, yes. And you could have actually acquired the asset prior to the 29th of January. In fact, you could have acquired it back to from as early as May 2015, I think. But as long as it is first used or installed ready for use on or after the 29th of January 2019, then you can use that 25,000 threshold. Um, And of course, the access to these instant write-off rules will be extended to 1 July 2020. But that is only if this bill gets through Parliament. And if it doesn't, and we don't have any further sitting days between now and 1 July 2019, then on 1 July 2019, we revert back to our old rules, which is $1,000 instant asset write-off, etc. I've got two responses to this. One (laughs) is, I would really like to see this as a permanent feature of our tax system. I'm starting to grow weary of annual extensions to a policy that, look, don't get me wrong, I agree with a write-off being available and I agree with it being increased. But there's no certainty for small business when a year at a time this is being drip-fed, when it should just be a permanent feature of the legislation. Well, how many years are we now? Are we up to well, three years? I was going to say, this is now the third extension we've mm. had. If, if it's good enough to be policy for three years, I think it's good enough to be policy permanently. Absolutely. So I, I welcome the policy, but I really wish it would be a, a permanent feature. All right, on to R&D reforms. Um, issue with the timing of this one, we won't get in today to the technical detail of it's what they're a bit proposing. Much technically, yeah. um, but broadly, they're uh, adopting R&D rates that will fall in line with your corporate tax rates. Proposed to commence on 1 July 2018. And if this doesn't go through the Senate and the April sitting days, then where does that leave us for R&D claims for the current year? That's right, people will need to start preparing their company tax returns without certainty about what rules they need to apply. All right, on to one of my favourite topics. I think this one's for you too, Robin. It is. The main residence (laughs) exemption changes for foreign residents. Strap yourselves in, everyone. All right, I'm about to get on my high horse. Um, For those of you that haven't been following my uh, regular posts on LinkedIn or the articles in the Fin Review, The Age, The Australian, etc. Um, I have been a very vocal advocate and, if you want to call it a, a lobbyist, in terms of trying to get some relief and some softening of these measures by the government, which are proposing to deny the main residence exemption for foreign residents. Now, on the face of it, the policy is non-residents should not be allowed to access the main residence exemption. 
fine. I have no fundamental problem with that. My difficulty is the expats, our Aussies who have spent potentially decades as residents living and working here, raising families and living in their homes, take up a position overseas, become a non-resident. I don't just mean you're holidaying overseas. I don't just mean that you are posted overseas where you retain residency here. I'm talking proper non-resident. And then you sell the property while you're over there. These measures are unfair, they are retrospective, and they're having a significant impact on Australians living overseas who are regularly asking me, should I sell these properties ahead of June 30 this year? The dates are critical because if you owned the property and continue to hold it right through into the CGT event, which happens by June 30 this year, you can apply the existing law, which means you could still tap into the six year absence mm. rule and the reset of your cost base to market value when you first rent it. But if the CGT event happens the other side of June 30, 19, that is from 1 July 19 onwards, you will not get one single day of main residence exemption. Can you I just, just go back? This is a change to the law that was proposed on the 9th of May 2017. And here we are, February 2019, and we don't have clarity. And noting the bill hit Parliament on the 8th of February 2018, over a year ago. Mm. We are now down to the last four months for a taxpayer to sell their property and apply the existing rules. In this softening market, we've had mm. the Royal Commission final report where lending conditions are noticeably tighter for a lot of borrowers. Yes. We've got a market where you may not necessarily be able to go out, list the property, find a buyer at the agreed price and enter into a contract by June mm. 30. If you fail to do so, however, and this measure goes through, you wouldn't get any main residence exemption. There are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars of tax at stake for taxpayers here. Yes, there are. And I think it's important to note that it is on contract date too. Absolutely. Mm. So where we're at, uh, look, we uh, know that Labor has publicly expressed their concerns about the retrospectivity, as have a number of the independents in the Senate. I continue to write to Labor and to Treasury and to the independent senators pointing out the difficulties and the shortcomings of this legislation. Aside from the retrospectivity issue, we've also got problems with deceased estates and a newer issue has emerged involving marriage breakdown rollover. So if your former spouse has become a non-resident, then it is possible that they could lose all of their main residence days when they were living here for the purpose of the other spouse now selling the property mm. and applying the main residence exemption. So it would impact on the spouse that continues to be a resident. Correct. Mm. And this has an impact on family law settlements. Yes. So yep. it's... My take on it, this hasn't been thought through. It's under the guise of housing affordability, but many are struggling to see how, in fact, it achieves that policy outcome. Mm. Uh, but it's really concerning with two sitting, sitting days in the Senate remaining, four months left to sell the property, and we have no response from the government as to whether they're going to proceed with this or not. So let's look at the possibilities. It could be one of those few bills that actually gets passed on the third and four, third or fourth, or sorry, second or third of April. And if so, it, it could pass as drafted. And That's if, a possibility. And, if, and I wouldn't be in favour of it passing in its current form. Mm. But if that occurs, then we've got just two months of certainty. Two months of certainty. Which is not long enough to sell properties. It's so, unreasonable. So if it, or it could pass with amendments being made, or it could not pass and therefore it lapses. Correct. And therefore it will be up to the new government to determine whether they will reintroduce it in either its current form or in a amended form. 
So I know I'm getting a lot of questions, um, both on social media as well as in sessions. What should we do? Um, at the moment, we haven't got an answer to that, unfortunately. Very difficult to answer that question. All right, there is a bill that has been introduced into Parliament, but again, its future is uncertain. It proposes to increase the maximum number of self-managed fund members from four to six with effect from 1 July 19. So we probably don't need to say a lot about this one. No, I would only just add that it also makes amendments to the sign-off requirements, which needs to be um, taken into account should this bill pass. Okay, moving on to the other major policy that people have been uh, keenly watching, mm. the proposed SG amnesty which was announced on the 24th of May last year. The bill was introduced into Parliament shortly thereafter and remains before the Senate. It has not been debated since last June, and yet it runs out on the 23rd of May this year. That's right, and I think this is unfortunate because it was a great opportunity for employers all over Australia to catch up on their unpaid super. And super is a really important, I guess, um, mechanism in our Australian economy. It doesn't work if super is not paid for employees. It's not the it's not the revenue that takes a hit. It's the the future of the employees that takes a hit when super is not paid. So it was a really good opportunity for employers to make things right, to fix things up. Um, and I guess by not having the certainty, that has meant that some people are hesitating. I think we would say they shouldn't hesitate. They owe the money. They probably shouldn't start talking to the ATO with or without an amnesty. <laughs> I'd agree with you, but I mm. also add that I think an employer who's hesitating, maybe this might persuade you to come forward. You are going to get a better deal on penalties if you come forward and talk to the ATO now than if you don't come forward, they find you because they will then throw the book at you. That's right. I My anecdotal evidence is that the ATO is working with employers that speak to them and is being generous in terms of, you know, being lighter on penalties and so forth. So I would absolutely encourage all employers to go forward. If the amnesty does become law, any voluntary, well, my understanding is that any voluntary disclosures made during the actual amnesty period, even prior to it being legislated, will be honoured in terms of the the um, amnesty terms. Yes, but no earlier than the 24th of May of That's 2018. Right. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, if it doesn't become law, the ATO would still, under the, the current situation where it's not yet law uh, are very likely to honour penalty remittance but they can't do anything about the deductibility or the administration component the $20 per employee. The That's deductibility is crucial or is why it's crucial that the the proposed bill actually becomes law. It's not at the discretion of ATO officers to, to give employers deductibility of super guarantee charge amounts. It is also worth noting that in the mid-year economic and fiscal outlook, the government announced that if someone is caught following the end of the amnesty period, whether or not it does or does not become law, uh, they will impose an additional 100% penalty. So heaps of penalties could be imposed beyond the, uh, the amnesty period if you don't come forward. All right, moving on to employees with multiple employers. Just by way of overview, the employee can apply to the ATO for a certificate and that will essentially relieve the employer from having to pay the SGC liability if they don't make SG contributions. Um, the difficulty we've got with this one in terms of timing, it's still before the Senate. It starts 1 July 18. You have to apply for this certificate at least 60 days before the quarter begins. That's a bit tricky, isn't it? Well, it's <laughs> when we're all four quarters <laughs> for the current year. So there is no possible way that we could do it according to what the law is suggesting should it be enacted. Either they're going to have to delay the start date, which is logical because we've already had a whole year's worth of contributions mm. going in and, and to upset those will be difficult. 
Um, or they're going to have to find out some administrative way of retrospectively issuing certificates, which is not ideal. Yeah, and even if they delay the start date, this is not going to be known for certain until the 2nd or 3rd of April and will already be just about outside that 60-day period for the first quarter. Of the next financial year. Of the next financial year. Correct. Uh, The next one, if I jump down to director identification numbers. So this is all part of this integrity measures and Phoenix activity and, and people who are not complying morally with their tax obligations. So what are they proposing here? Yeah, so as you say, it's a bit of a package to deal with Phoenix activity. There's a number of bills that are all tied up together. Currently, they've actually been sent off to the Senate Economics Legislation Committee, which will report on the 26th of March, which does give them time to potentially pass a couple of these, or they might pass all five bills that are related to this at the same time through um, the House of Reps and Senate, the Senate, but it will still be pretty tight. So I'm not sure where we will land. With this particular one, uh, in addition to effectively creating a registry, this will uh, ensure that all directors need to apply for a director identification number. So that's new directors and also existing directors. The detail of that will actually be issued by the registry that's created. So we don't have the full detail, particularly for existing directors with this, but yeah. All right, so to wrap up the discussion, we've now got 13 issues and we can do these in about a minute each. So each of these are measures that have been announced, but there's still an exposure draft or discussion paper or media release date. They have not proceeded to bills. The first one, the proposed economy-wide cash payment limit of $10,000, now proposed to commence on the 1st of January 2020, we are still waiting on. Well, I think we're still waiting on someone to come up with an implementation model that will work. I'm wondering how it is they can say to a business, you cannot accept or receive or supply a good or a service for any more than $10,000 in cash. It must be done electronically or by cheque. I've been really intrigued by this policy and I'm Mm. wondering how they're going to administer it. Yeah, I I think there's a few mechanisms. Well, there's very few mechanisms that will actually be able to implement this. So we've got a long way to go with this, I think. All right, the next one has, uh, I won't say even divided the profession. I think the profession is actually quite united on this. It's divided the government and the profession. That's right. Where this came from, I don't know. So this was a proposal to provide for a three-year audit cycle for SMSFs. So that means that SMSFs that have a good compliance history, good record-keeping and compliance history, will only have to undertake their annual audits every three years. So they'll still need to do three annual audits, but they only have to do them every three years. Now, does anyone want this in the industry? No. So let's hope it kind of just stays where it is as a consultation paper and doesn't actually move forward. And feedback I've received (laughs) is auditors would charge more for a three-year audit because Mm. it's more involved in doing three years worth of work than three times an annual year audit fee. And I would also say that a couple of recent cases that have come out of the Sydney... Supreme Court would have really put auditors on notice in terms of what they are charging. The obligations on them have been reinforced, perhaps through those um, through those cases. And so you're referring, of course, to the Cam and Bear case. Cam and Bear. Cam and Bear, but Cam and Bear Cam is and Bear a, proprietary as well limited. Yeah. And the other one is, of course, Ryan Investments. Yes. Yep. yep. All right, ABN reforms. Um, Look, I was involved last August in a a consultation up in Canberra with Treasury and the ATO and a number of professional associations. 
Uh, it's an opportunity where concerned about the use of ABNs or misuse of ABNs mm. by certain contractors or businesses, they're looking at modernising the system, but it's also an opportunity to say, oh, look, it's being used for many more things than it was originally intended for as an identifier back in the GST introduction days. Um, so we'll see where this goes, but there hasn't been any movement on this one since last August. I think it needs to happen. I'd, I'd like to see it move forward, so, but, yeah, no we'll, detail yet. We shall really. see. Mm. Uh, I'll just mention this in passing because in my experience, uh, none of our clients are going to be affected by this. Circular trust distributions, this is all to do with the trustee beneficiary statement and TB non-disclosure tax, where a distribution is made in a circular manner through a group of trusts, resulting in the ultimate distribution back to the original trust. I have never seen that in practice. Um, I have encountered very few taxpayers who ever have. But there is a concern that this is being used still by family trusts that are currently excluded from having to do a TB statement. Mm. Um, interestingly, they will continue to be exempt from completing a TB statement. But if they engage in a circular distribution from 1 July 19, they will be subject to the TB non-disclosure tax. That's right. So this is an exposure draft form, uh, which is the next stage of this is that it will be tabled as a final bill in Parliament. But again, it's unlikely to that we will see this go through before 1 July 19, which is when it's intended to commence. The next measure is vacant land. So exposure draft legislation has been released for this. Um, we won't go again into the technical detail, but they're proposing to deny deductions for the cost of holding vacant land from 1 July 19, and certain exemptions will apply. Certain exemptions will apply. I'm concerned with how this one is currently drafted. Being a country girl coming off a farm in the Mallee, I am concerned about how this might apply to retired farmers who are still owning land but leasing it out, so receiving passive income to unrelated entities. And I'm concerned they've been perhaps caught up in this, whereas they were never intended to be caught up in this. And I share that concern with the adjustment. Yes. I'm yep. concerned that it's vacant and even though it's earning income, you may be unable to claim deductions against that income, which seems preposterous. That's right, because the, the taxpayer or a related party, the taxpayer is not carrying on a business. So hopefully they do a little bit more work on that. The next one won't affect too many taxpayers. This is about Everett assignments. So you assign your interest in the income or capital of a partnership and access to the small business CGT concessions. And in response to concerns that some people were alienating their partnership income by assigning their interest in partnerships, from the 8th of May 2018, you will be unable to use the small business CGT concessions if you're assigning your interest in the income or capital of a partnership without actually becoming a partner in the partnership. That's right. If, if all you're intended to receive is income and capital, but you're not actually taking on the obligations and responsibilities of being a partner, including joint and several liability, then that's when you don't get access to the CJT small business concessions. Division 7A, and gosh, I could speak endlessly about this one, but time is against us. Yes, So time all... is against the government too, can I say? Um, yes, it is, and taxpayers. So all I'll say on this one is we've now been waiting for seven years. An original 2012 commissioned review by the Board of Tax led to a report delivered in 2014, which led to the government announcement in 2016 that they would amend the rules from 1 July 18. Then they announced in 2018 that they would delay the measures to 1 July 2019. We have had a discussion paper released by Treasury. We are waiting very, very anxiously and keenly for draft legislation. I think it's important to get some legislation, particularly in respect of 
how is this going to affect our pre-2009 UPEs and our pre-97 loans? It's important that we know exactly what's going to happen, whether any grandfather provisions will apply. What is also worth noting is that when the Board of Taxation started this review, it was actually a Labor government. So if those who were thinking that there might be a change of government, that this might you know, fall off the uh, agenda, I don't think it will. I, I think there's probably you. bipartisan support for changes. Um, it's just that we don't know technically what those changes are yet. Yeah, I don't think we can kiss this goodbye just no. because Labor might form government. No. Um, I did speak to Treasury a couple of weeks ago and the release of the exposure draft legislation and any possible deferral date of 1 July 19 to a later date um, is strictly a matter for the government and I have Mm. no further information on that. Um, As to transitional rules and carve-outs, the government is opposed to the idea of that, so that's basically going to cause a number of issues and ramifications Mm. for some of those older arrangements. Moving on to income derived by individuals for their licensing of their image or their fame. A proposal from 1 July 19 to assess this back to the individual. Uh, Again, we're just at discussion paper stage and there's no detail as to the mechanism as to how we get the income back into the individual's return. Yeah, I think the failure of the consultation paper to include a mechanism is problematic. I I would suggest that personal services income rules might be a good mechanism, although we probably need a little clarification of some of those rules too. We've never really had a test case to test um, uh, significantly those rules. Uh, Again, this is a measure that is intended to start on 1 July 2019 without any grandfathering of contract arrangements. So this is one of the ones I'm concerned about. If we don't have clarity, this will have implications for those that may need to review or renegotiate contracts for the commencement of 1 July 19. And it's not going to be good enough for them to find out a few months later that the contracts that they have in place are ineffective. They really need to be reviewing them in a timely way. It is problematic. Uh, There's a measure announced in MIFO in 2016 that if a business owes a debt of more than $10,000, it would be, uh, the details would be advised to the debt collection agencies. Uh, That limit is now being proposed to increase up to 100,000. So this is all about reigning in small business debt and I won't linger on this issue, Um, but to note that businesses that owe debts under 100,000 would no longer be subject to these proposed reporting rules. So on to three reviews by the Board of Tax, and I'll just mention them by title only. And it's if you actually want... four reviews. It is four reviews. I'll take that back. <laughs> so moving on to four reviews by the Board of Taxation, three of which have already been commissioned and a fourth one is about to get underway. Um, more detail is available on the Board of Tax website. So they are looking at the income tax residency rules, so determining when someone is or is not a tax resident. Um, given we've got very old-fashioned concepts that um, are making this a very complicated process. Yeah, it is high time that we did review the residency rules and hopefully I can note that the Harding case was determined last week on appeal to the full federal court and the taxpayer actually won that, so the taxpayer was found to... not be a resident Which is very of significant. Australia. A lot it of people is, are following that case. Yeah, it is very significant. So I guess it just highlights the importance of actually reviewing those rules. The second review is one of small business concessions. They're not necessarily CGT um, by itself, but all the small business concessions. Um, look, this is a whole discussion in itself. We have so many different definitions and they're inconsistent thresholds. Um, it'll be very interesting to see what the Board of Tax comes back with on this mm. one. 
Next is the sharing economy. Uh, they're wanting to bring in a reporting mechanism, so the Airbnbs and the Ubers and those working with them in those sharing economy type activities. Um, there is a, a way of reporting information so it can be data matched by the ATO. Yeah, we tend to be a little bit behind the times as we have these new and innovative ways of, of interacting and, and moving capital around our community. We tend to take a, little, a bit too long to catch up to that from a revenue coll- collection perspective and, and data gathering perspective. So I guess this might... Um, help to address that and lastly they're looking at granny flats so this is really an issue about elder abuse versus the tax implications for the property owner where a an elderly relative comes to live with them on their property and they're trying to balance the tax implications for the property owner against documenting and formalizing arrangements which is a a disincentive from that tax perspective but at the same time providing some protection for the elderly resident. Yeah it also has um, social security ramifications as well so it crosses over a few areas this particular one. All right, so if you'd like some more information about the measures we've gone through today, we are also going to be putting up a banter blog and you can locate that on our website and that gives you much more technical detail than what we've gone through as well as a bunch of hyperlinks to take you to the relevant documents. So, Nicole, it's been great having a chat with you today. Thank you, Robin. I do apologise to all our listeners that we've gone a little bit longer than most podcasts. We had a lot to cover today, didn't we? That's right. We always have a lot to say, (laughs) but um, particularly on this topic, so thank you. And we might do a bit of an update because we're going to have the last date uh, before the federal election uh, about the 14th of April so we might do a little bit of an update after then in terms of where we're at what bills did actually get through and where does that leave us absolutely so Mm. I'd love to see you back here again that'd be great thank Thank you. you before we wrap up this episode we'd like to say thank you to our listeners for your support so far and all the great feedback you've given us with a special offer On Wednesday the 3rd of April, TaxBanter will be conducting our annual webinar on the federal budget and we're offering all our listeners a 10% discount when you register with promo code TAXYAC19. That's TAXYAC19. This offer is only being offered here to our valued TAXYAC listeners and we hope you continue to enjoy our podcast. If you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you are because it helps to improve the profile of the show. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time. Mm-hmm.